This is the Scale with Psychology podcast, where you're going to optimize your psychology to exponentially scale your business and become the ultimate version of yourself. I'm your host, Ani Manian, widely known as the Mind Whisperer and trusted advisor and psychedelic therapist to the world's top entrepreneurs and leaders. And I believe that entrepreneurship is a mental game. And the main constraint in any business is not the strategies and tactics, but the psychology of the founder. And with each episode, I'm going to help you take your life in business to levels you never thought possible. If you're ready to play the game of life and business in God mode, then this is the podcast for you. Essentially, partner marketing and performance, it's performance marketing in a way that you've never experienced before. He's been profitably scaling customer acquisition programs for the world's most of brands since he founded this company, which is called Giddy Up in 2013. And since then, he's launched over 100 direct-to-consumer brands, acquired over 10 million customers, and has profitably driven over 150 million in total brand revenue. And get this, all on 100% commissions only. In 2018, they were ranked on the Inc. 500 as the 33rd fastest growing marketing company and the 304th fastest growing company overall. He's the co-founder and the VP of marketing, and he leads Giddy Up's global brand strategy and communications. It's my pleasure to welcome Eric Schechter. Hey, man. Hello, sir. It's good to be here. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great, just enjoying the beautiful weather here in, uh, in sunny South Florida. <clears throat> so things are good. So you have not just a really cool story, but you're like the king of taglines. And the title of this conversation, what if you had a million dollar marketing budget, but you just didn't know it, was actually the headline when you first launched Kitty Up. So why don't we start there? Tell us the story of how all that came to Sure, yeah. So... I got my start really in sales and marketing back in 2003 when I was actually doing it to promote my uh, the band that I was in uh, and doing it to really sell CDs and book gigs for us at some of the local bars in town. And it wasn't very easy because we were very new and no one knew that we existed. So I got a lot of no's at first, um, but I was a very persistent kid uh, growing up. And I actually attribute that to a lot of the lessons that my dad had taught me early on, one of them being this mindset of every no brings you one step closer to a yes. And I just absolutely love that mindset, right? And what I found was that as I was going and pitching my product at the time, which was our music, uh, I just loved getting the no, uh, figuring out why I was being told no, and figuring out the right sales pitch, figuring out the right positioning, to go ahead and get them to say, get the next person to say yes, right? This idea of like, okay, I got that no out of the way, I'm one step closer. And when I did get that yes, man, I got hooked on that feeling. Uh, and so I also like, I realized that I really loved marketing and sales. And I also had enough self-awareness at the time that I knew I wasn't gonna be a rock star. Uh, and so I wanted to go and do marketing for some of the big dogs in the music industry, like go and be, 
you know, a, a VP of marketing at Sony or Capitol Records. And so that was the dream. And so I ended up going to UCF to study marketing and psychology, uh, get kind of the formal education part of that in. And senior year, I ended up getting a internship at a independent record label in Orlando, Florida. And that's actually where I met one of my first co-founders, Topher Grant. And it was awesome. You know, in the past, I had done a lot of guerrilla marketing and kind of scrappy sales. But this was the time where I was leveraging social networking for the first time. And so I was using MySpace. And the power, powerful thing about MySpace marketing that I found was like, man, we could reach so many people around the world. We could create these one-to-one -one connections between the fans and the artists. And then we were able to evangelize them and get them to do some of the really powerful work within their communities, like calling up the radio station and requesting that our bands were being uh, played on the radio, going into their record stores and saying, hey, do you have this artist CD? Um, building little communities of street teams with people that were connecting on MySpace that they never knew existed. I was like, wow, this, this tool is super powerful. And I was very excited. Unfortunately, this was uh, in 2008. And this was the rise of like Napster and digital music. And the music industry was going through a very uh, interesting time. And uh, it wasn't a great time to join, right? People were downloading music for free, burning CDs for their friends. Um, and it just wasn't a, a very good time. And so the record label ended up closing and I kind of needed a, a new dream, so to speak. But I knew that I wanted to be in marketing. Um, and it just so happens that I was talking to one of my friends at the time. and he. Uh, was starting a social media agency. And even though I was using social networking, I never really knew exactly what that term was. It was 2008. And so it was very still much, uh, very much in its infancy. Uh, and it was also another hard sell, right? This was during the recession. And we were trying to find businesses that had budget and believed in kind of what we were talking about, the powers of these tools, when they had no idea what Twitter was. They had no idea that, that they could even be on Facebook as a business or why they should be on Facebook. And so we had to just really find the right types of companies. And I remember this one story actually where we had worked uh, with this uh, uh, sushi restaurant in downtown Orlando and they believed in us and they wanted, they were like new and they wanted to like make a name for themselves. And so we thought, how can we leverage these tools to really uh, make an impact for them in kind of an out-of-the-box thinking way. And the thing about Orlando is that they have a very vibrant tech community. They have people that are very much early adopters within kind of these social platforms and so forth. And we found that there was a lot of people on Twitter. And so what we did was we wanted to position this sushi restaurant to kind of be the hub of this like tech community in a way. So we threw our very first tweet up, we called it back then, which was basically finding all of the tech people on Twitter, messaging them by using like social listening tools like Twitter search at the time and invited them to the restaurant. The owners came out, the chef came out, told them the story. We gave them a little bit of a discount on their meals. And basically the people that were on there at this time, everyone was putting their entire life on Twitter, right? So they were taking pictures of the food and talking about the conversation. And everyone was using, using the hashtag of the restaurant uh, in, in their posts. And we even did something really interesting at the time where we, uh, the brand agreed to letting people place takeout orders via Twitter too, using a hashtag. And so we created a lot of buzz and basically we're known as like one of the 
you know, the hub kind of restaurants for the tech community. And it boosted their sales dramatically within that area. Cause right. You're just building a lot more raving fans. Why would I go to this sushi restaurant when I know this other one understands me and is totally part of the community. And so that was really awesome. Uh, the thing was though, right. We were, uh, we were still very early and finding a lot of those brands just, it, it, it was very difficult. And the, the owner of the agency just couldn't keep up and I wasn't making enough to pay my bills, but it was a great experience, but I knew that I needed to like move on. Um, and as luck would really have it, uh, I got a call one day from a recruiter and they said, Hey, we have a, uh, I work at a company that's growing really quickly. We're looking for a social media manager in Sarasota, Florida and ended up going there and it was just a crazy experience. This company in 2009 was the fifth fastest growing company in the country. They had done $92 million in revenue and they were doing it as a performance CPA company, which I had no idea uh, what that was. I just knew, wow, fast growing startup, all young people, really cool, innovative model. And so I joined um, and it was, it was a great experience on like being a part of that. Um, ultimately it was very, a bittersweet experience. And the reason for that is so the good parts, right? Number one, I was introduced to this performance model, which I'll, I'm sure we'll chat about here in a little bit. Um, but just seeing that and at scale and how that was crushing it during the recession was just mind blowing to me. And so it was great to be a part of that. I met my second co-founder, uh, Todd Armstrong there. And so obviously a really good part of that, you know, got, uh, met the guy that I would soon start a business with and, the third part was really seeing the inner workings, kind of getting that front row seat to the good things that they did as a fast growing startup and some of the mistakes that they made. Uh, and so that would also serve me now uh, as I started my own business. But I ended up only actually staying there for a year. And the reason for that is I was marketing the company, so the brand itself. I wasn't really involved with a lot of the products or services that they were selling and marketing. And as I started to really understand what was going on, um, I just felt like it w I wasn't very aligned with that side of the business. So this was like the very wild west in the performance world back then. And essentially companies were doing and saying anything they wanted to, to kind of sell products. And these were like diet pills and skin creams and, and kind of like these very low quality products too, that they were just slapping kind of new brand labels on saying that celebrities promoted them when they didn't. And it was just something that, again, I just wasn't very aligned with. And so I decided that I needed to leave. Um, and that's when I was, a, I moved back home to South Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale area, and ended up taking the job as the social media manager for Carnival Cruise Lines, um, which was honestly a dream job at the time. So Carnival was one of the very first big brands to invest very early on in social. And they wanted to invest in me. And so I got to have massive budget, basically trying all different types of experiments, doing a lot of content, marketing their big ships online. And I got to travel the world. Like we would launch new ships in Italy and the Mediterranean, and I would go and create content around these new ships. So as a 25 year old, I mean, it was definitely a, a dream job for me. And, uh, and yeah, so and also, right, the customer base, everyone loved being on vacation, everyone would take pictures and want to do content. And when you're not on vacation, you definitely want to think like you're on vacation. So people just ate up everything that we did. And it was just a great first stab, uh, or first start at like, doing that type of social media work and learning how big brands work and kind of that whole thing. And that was actually one of the reasons 
that contributed to me leaving too. And so uh, really what had happened was I, I was crushing it, you know, the first year there trying to overachieve because I loved my job. And I remember my boss coming in and she was really excited to tell me that I got the biggest raise in the company. Uh, and it was a 10% raise. Like this is big, right? Most companies give like 2% raises. I got 10%. But I had started at the company making like 50 grand. And so the raise was like five grand. And I was very appreciative of, of it, right? Because I knew it was, a, it was a big raise. But I was like, man, my financial goal at that time was I wanted to make six figures. And I'm like, I just crushed it and got the biggest raise of the company. And after taxes, maybe you're making like three grand. I'm like, how am I ever going to get to six figures? It's going to take me a decade. And so I, uh, I love the brand. And so I tried to be entrepreneurial at the time. And so I was looking for ways of saying, how can I add more value uh, and maybe you know, add more value to the company, maybe cut expenses? And, uh, and so I found an opportunity basically with this report that one of our age, big agencies was making for us. It was a social listening report, and it was using a tool that Carnival owned and was paying for. And the report was super basic, and they were charging us like 10 grand a month. And I was like, oh, this is an opportunity. So I, was, I said, I went to my boss's office, and I'm like, hey, I can make a report that's way better than this. Like, I would love the opportunity to show you. And if it works and you guys find value in this, I will, I'll only charge five grand a month. And so I'm going to add way more value to the company and I'm going to cut expenses in half. No brainer, right? Basically, I was told, you know, no, we can't do that. You know, these are different budgets. We can't just give you a five grand a month raise, yada, yada, yada. And it was at that point that my eyes really opened. Like, I can't stay here if I'm going to hit my, you know, financial goals. And so immediately kind of opened you know, opened my eyes and tennis went up for other opportunities while I was still working at Carnival. And at that time, so I was staying in touch with Topher Grant, who I'd met at the record label, as well as his brother, Justin and Todd, who I'd met at the performance company. We were now roommates in South Florida. And so Todd and I were always talking about uh, the performance model and how powerful it was. But it was just like a shame because it was only being leveraged for these very low quality products. And the people that needed it were these great entrepreneurs that had an amazing idea that didn't have a lot of marketing budget. And what they were doing was going to one agency, paying them a lot of money, hoping that the, the agency was going to figure it out. And then like, mo like most agencies, honestly, uh, in the world, they talk a big game, but rarely deliver. And that may not just be because they don't believe they can. It's just very hard to crack a campaign and profitably scale. And so we just we just saw there was a big opportunity to bring the performance model to really new and unique brands that added a lot of value to people in the world. So, so I want you to I want you to like just for a second set the picture because I can personally attest to um, how you know disastrous it is to work with most agencies. Explain a little bit why this happens, right? Because this is systemic. And also explain the performance model itself and how it's different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you, you know, this is just what most people think you're supposed to do, right? In it's almost like life, right? I'm supposed to get good grades in high school. I'm supposed to go to college. I'm supposed to, you know, go get a good job. I'm supposed to get married. I'm supposed to have kids and then I'm going to retire, you know, and then my life begins. It's kind of something that we're taught. And I think that's similar in the business community as well. It's like, all right, I created a great product. I don't know marketing. I know how to. I know how to make. I know what I'm good at. I'm an expert in my field. 
how am I going to go get sales? I don't know how to build a website. I don't know how to uh, do online advertising. And so really what most people are aware of is like, oh, I got to go find someone that can do it for me. Um, and the problem is with the, with the traditional agency model is just that it's very expensive, right? Typically you're spending, you know, five figures when it all comes down to creating your website, your videos, kind of all the setup that you need to profitably acquire customers online. And the incentives and the, the models are very much like opposing, right? Like the agencies aren't necessarily paid and incentivized to make sure that you're profitably scaling. They're incentivized for you to spend more money um, or figure it out through retainers. And so it just always felt like it just didn't make sense. And the thing is, if you're an entrepreneur and you're a startup, you don't have a big budget, mo most likely, unless you've gotten funding or you come from you know, wealth or you did a friends and family dis you know, uh, raise. Uh, and so uh, if you if you trust one agency to figure that out for you and they don't do a good job, like I have a lot of friends that were startup that were startup founders and it almost put them out of business. And so I think it's just one of those things where if that's not your core competency as a product owner, we haven't really been taught that there's another way uh, and that there's this whole other market uh, that you can tap into uh, by creating a product and a funnel that is so compelling where other people want to spend their own time and money figuring out how to sell your product and only get a piece of the upside when it works. And it kind of touches back to the story at the end of the story, which I just want to finalize because uh, basically as I was trying to look for opportunities, uh, I had gotten a call from a friend who was uh, had the opportunity to launch a crowdfunding campaign for a new consumer tech product. And he knew what we were trying to do at the time. And he's like, hey, if you guys want to do a performance deal with this, like I'm totally down. And so we checked out the product and we we thought it was awesome. And so we're like, hell yeah. So we built the landing page for, uh, for the campaign. We uh, created some videos. We uh, made some images. We spent all of our own time and money doing it all. And then what we did was we brought it to a couple performance marketers that we knew that would spend their own time and money buying ads for this product online. And if it worked, they were going to be able to drive a lot of volume. And so we took it to them. And honestly, the campaign really just went viral. So not only were the paid ads um, very successful, but the product got like tens of thousands of shares, organic shares and comments. And we ended up doing $7 million in 90 days for that brand, our very first product ever. And it was like fireworks went off. But the thing was, the thing that was really interesting uh, about that was not even just the, the amount of revenue. It was two things. Number one, it was all pre-orders. So we did this all for a product that didn't even exist yet. Uh, and number two, they, the brand themselves didn't have to spend any money on marketing to generate that $7 million. Over a million dollars was spent on marketing. And that didn't need to be approved by a board. It didn't need to be approved by an executive. It was basically tapping into a partner uh, marketing uh, system where other people believe in the product. They believe that if they spend their time, that that funnel will convert for them. And what happened is you have all these different people with different ideas on how to promote a product, figuring out and then scaling it. And as long as the brand is able to keep up with inventory and all of those things, the sky's the limit. And then the brand is profitable on every sale. They can use that to grow their company. They don't have to go after VC money, or at least not as quickly. 
Um, they can fo focus on their core competency of, you know, making the product better over time, creating a great customer experience. And now you have the sales engine that's allowing you to scale across every major online channel, every international market, and so forth. And so that that was really like where I was like, man, this is awesome. I quit my job at Carnival. We, me and Todd sold all of our stuff, moved to California. And then like you had said, today we've launched over 100 brands. Uh, we've actually driven over... That one I think that you read was a seven. So we've done over $750 million in attributable sales for brands, uh, acquired over 10 million in customers, and we've done it 100% uh, on performance. No one's ever paid us a dollar except when it's generated them a return. And that is what like performance partnerships truly is. And that was where we came up with the, the kind of idea for the headline, which is like, what if you had a million dollar marketing budget? You just didn't know it yet. That's what this company had. These other people spent a million dollars to drive them seven and no one, they never had to put that capital uh, in up front. Now, this is a dream for most entrepreneurs, right? I spent years consulting and startup founders and there were some phases to the growth of a startup, particularly tech startups. And this was, you know, the period before they found the product market fit and then the period after. And most startups that never really took off struggled to either find a product market fit, literally the connection between what they're selling and what the market wants, um, because they were either too self-absorbed, they were trying to solve problems um, that they had personally that didn't um, have market viability, or you know they just didn't connect with the real problems that the market had, or they knew what the problem was, they had a solution, but they couldn't articulate to the market that they had a solution to the problem that the market had. And so typically what would happen is, and this is you know applicable, as I'm sure you know, like to literally every industry, every, every entrepreneur, every business, every business is trying to solve a problem that the market has. Mm -hmm. And its ability to solve this problem, the extent to which it can solve the problem, and the extent to which it can communicate to the right person that it solves their problem in the right way determines their success. Well, I think, I think too, that just to jump in, I think yeah. you don't always understand what their product is. And what I mean by that, the best example that I have is like, take Mario from Mario Brothers, right? Uh, most people think that their their product is or their customer is mario right and that their product is the fireball um but their product is not the fireball their product is mario being able to shoot fireballs out and kill kind of all of you know kill all of these uh villains in in the game and it's what what is that form that your customer will have what is that end result that they're going to be able to experience that is your product and your product is just the conduit to that and the question is uh, that we always go into, like you said, it's like, it may be the product market fit, but I think that a lot of entrepreneurs assume that their product is solving a certain problem. Uh, but it may be that, but it may not be the biggest problem. And I think that uh, usually uh, most brands aren't doing enough testing. They're going really hardcore. And this is what most of the big agencies do, right? Like the ones on Madison Avenue, which is like, they'll create massive... Uh, campaigns, spending a lot of money going really hard, maybe doing a little bit of consumer research and, and but not doing any testing. And 
better hope that that is the right problem to go after 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 you've spent hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars going after it. Um, and I definitely have an example of that that we can go into later. But I do I do think you're spot on with what you said, as well as just most people not recognizing that their product is really the uh, the final result of what that helps their customer become. Uh, and that's really where you want to get to from a marketing perspective. Yeah, and I forget who said this, but people don't buy hammers and nails, they buy the holes, Yeah, right? And it's an entrepreneur's ability to communicate and sell the hole, not the hammer and nail, which is their product or service, that really makes the difference. So what I want to dive into, because I think you have a very unique perspective on this, is what are the ingredients for product or a product plus message that can operate in this performance marketing way, right? Because for someone to agree to drop you know, their cash and bet that they'll make a return and make a lot of sales, there have to be certain criteria that you probably evaluate. So what are the ingredients you're seeing that make product a service or an offer, something that you look at and you're like, wow, this is going to sell. Or you look at another product and you know there's something in you that just disqualifies or dismisses it because you know that it's not going to fly like the other one. Sure. Well, I think there's things that we look at as a company based on the stage that we're in and we operate within a certain niche of the market. But I think that as time goes, I believe partner marketing will be the go-to channel for most brands, whether you're a big brand or a small brand, uh, just getting started up like, or getting started like a startup. Uh, but I think that uh, there's a couple things that are super important that could probably be more generalized. Um, number one, I think that you need a growth mindset and you need a partner mindset. Uh, and so the growth mindset is that if someone wants to, typically as a performance marketer, if I'm going to spend all of my time and capital investing in figuring out a campaign, there's times where I'm going to go negative. I'm taking on all the risk. I want to figure it out. I want to know that if I do figure it out, I'm going to be able to scale it, right? And so a brand needs to have that in place. And so the way that you're doing that is you're, you're thinking about making sure that, okay, I need to have enough inventory in place. I need to make sure that uh, I understand that if we get to the point of scale, I'm willing to support it. Um, I So there's this one, uh, another mindset that I think is super important to the same point, which I believe that uh, it all comes down to a brand being willing and able to spend the most money to acquire a customer. Those are the brands that are going to win. We're very used to thinking like, oh man, how do I, how do I uh, get my customer acquisition uh, costs down? I think that's the wrong place to think. I think it's how do you spend the most money to do it while still being profitable? Because if you can spend the most money in your niche, you're not going to have any competitors being able to keep up with you. So, so I want to I want to I want to just pause you for a second because you dropped some solid gold and I want to make sure people are picking up what you're putting down. Right. So the first one, the first thing that you said was that it's really a question. Can you handle scale? Can your business handle scale without breaking? Because, you know, if you look at the core um, components of a business, right, lead acquisition, lead nurture, conversion slash sales, product delivery, and retention, renewal, upsell. If 
you can scale and offer up, but if they can't deliver and serve it on the back end, then that's not going to work. And most, most entrepreneurs, they want growth and they want scale, but they don't actually, they haven't built the dock that can take a cruise ship. They have a little, you know, little jetty that'll take some rafts and some, you know, tiny boats. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a business and that's a model that's actually unscalable. And I think it's important too, because it, it all comes down to working with the right partner. Like for us, not at, like many times we're working with companies that maybe are only doing two to three orders a day. And within a few weeks, we put them on back order and maybe they had 10,000 units, but if the product takes off, they're like sold out in a couple of weeks. And so we want to be very careful, right? The worst thing that you can do is, uh, take big promises from someone that's telling you, oh, get 100,000 units, we can sell this out quickly. We never do that to anyone. We want to make sure we have a, a certain amount that allows us to go through it where it gives enough incentive for us to want to work on it and our partners. But we're very careful in making sure that no one overextends themselves because no one knows at the end of the day what's going to work and what's not. Uh, and so you want to be careful. You want right. to be financially smart. However, that's all about finding the right partners. And there's other things that you can do in order to scale. It's like, what are your man what are your cogs, your cost of goods sold? Uh, can you get those down? What does that look like as you scale, knowing about your profitability, right? Um, what what can you do on the offer perspective to make sure that people are spending more money per order than they would otherwise? And there's a lot of strategies to do that. And then the other one that I think a lot of businesses aren't thinking about yet. Um, is everyone's talking about customer acquisition and customer acquisition, which I think is really powerful and important. But what about once they're your customer? Once they're your customer, a customer is 80 to 90% more likely to buy from you in the future than a cool. It's like trying to convince strangers to buy from you over people like your, your good friend that already trusts you. And I think that there's so much opportunity, even for small brands to be saying, how can I add the most value to my customer base? How can I build LTV? Life, lifetime value out of my customers because the more that you're able to do that on the back end, the more you're going to be willing to spend to acquire a customer on the front end. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities to position yourself, but you have to be smart. And, and that's the other difference with partnership, like performance partnerships. It's that growth mindset, but it's a partner. It's someone that you're not looking at as a vendor that's looking at it from their own perspective and what's I'm going to get mine and you're going to get yours. And it's all very siloed. It's like, this has to be a win-win-win solution. When the marketing partner wins, when the brand uh, wins, and most importantly, when the consumer wins, because they're the people that are putting the money in the machine to make it all go round, that's when you're finding some massive success that uh, helps you achieve the scalability that you're looking for. That's brilliant. And I wanna, again, highlight and pinpoint two things that you said, right? Um, one is, the focus on LTV rather than lowering CAC, which is customer acquisition costs. Most people, like you said, they focus on reducing CAC rather than looking at how much the customer is worth over their lifetime to them yeah. and how can I acquire the most customers while still being profitable. And really a cognitive bias that people have, right? Because the thing is, our, let's talk about the neuroscience of marketing for a second. We are designed as organisms to minimize and mitigate risk. 
we're always, our brains are naturally always scanning for risk and threats and want to survive. And our goal is to um, minimize cost, minimize expenditure, and that comes in the form of energy, but money is also energy. And so in our businesses, we're trying to reduce cost, reduce cost, reduce cost, but in marketing, it actually works the other way around, right? And the other bias that comes in here is that we undervalue the lifetime value of a customer and we overvalue what we would spend or what we would gain in the short term. And this is why people struggle to save for retirement because we literally is, you know, in our brains, it's hard for us to conceive ourselves, you know, 50 years into the future when we would be retired and need that money or whatever the timeline is. And therefore we spend that money right now. The other thing that you said that also has a human behavior and psychology um, factor in it is um, you said, what was the other point that you made um, in terms of the factors that, you know, affect how quickly and profitably you can scale? Yeah, so I, I think, well, number one, it's getting people uh, to spend more also in terms of when they're getting, putting together an irresistible offer and increasing cart value. So when I talk to most entrepreneurs, they're like, no one's ever going to buy more than one of my product. And they don't set themselves up to knowing that if you're adding value and if you're creating a great offer, people will spend much more on your product. Maybe they want to gift it. Maybe there's a reason that they need more. And so it's, it, there's a lot of moving pieces to, to being able to scale, but I think your, your manufacturing costs is one, getting your costs um, as low as possible without affecting the product quality. Um, it's creating a, uh, a funnel. So most people are like, I need ads, I need ads. And I, I don't know if this is something you were saying, but it's like, don't worry on that part yet. Make sure your home is taken care of. Like when you get traffic to your website, are you taking full advantage of that traffic? How fast is your page load speed? Because that is one of the biggest conversion killers ever. You could be, you could have the best funnel ever. If your if your page takes forever to load, you're just not doing what you need to be doing to take advantage of this very high quality, expensive traffic that's coming in. Um, are you being very clear about the messaging on your website? Are you creating a frictionless uh, user and buying experience that makes buying super easy, whether you're on desktop or on mobile? Are you creating an irresistible offer that? makes people want to uh, buy not only immediately when they see you or, you know, over uh, a couple other touch points, but spending as much as possible. Are you giving people the opportunity? So why are you just allowing them to buy one or if they want to buy adding, if they want to add more to add to cart, why is there no incentive? Why are there no bundles or discounts or getting maybe a product for free if they buy two or three from you? Um, free shipping on certain things. And then most importantly as well, which so many companies and businesses don't do this, um, but it's remarketing. You know, a lot of people are getting tons of organic traffic maybe to their website or people are, you know, friends are telling friends about it, but they're not putting things in place to make sure that the follow-ups are there. So let's say you found out about an amazing new product and you told your, you told 10 friends about it, right? And they all checked out that product, but maybe nine of them weren't ready to buy. Um, that brand is basically relying on you to go and consistently remind your 10 friends that they should be buying your product as opposed to putting valuable messaging in front of them that builds trust and engagement over time with that customer. 
and getting them to purchase. Just so many people are just not doing that. Um, and so I just think that you want to take, you want to make sure that you're doing everything impossible to reduce your, your overall expenses and costs of the product. You're taking care of your, your website and funnel just to make sure that it's prepped so you can squeeze all of the juice out of it and that you're doing the follow-up things to make sure that you're uh, able to capitalize on all this traffic that's happening. And then when you're ready to scale, that you have an understanding of what that means. Um, I also think another piece is what we call the halo effect. And so what the halo effect is, is that whenever we drive massive amounts of traffic and sales to a funnel, there's people that are going and doing their own research and buying that in other places, right? And so when we drive, let's just say a thousand orders to a website to uh, buy uh, on our funnel that we've created, there's going to be at least 300 people that are buying on Amazon or on your website or on other retailers. The question is, are you doing, are you on those retailers? Are you making sure that you're being able to be visible when someone searches for you? Um, and are you doing a good job of understanding the correlation between those sales and what you're doing on a performance marketing perspective? Because you have to know your numbers because you might even be able to go break even on a performance marketing campaign because you know that 30% more sales are happening in other places. And that gives you a lever to create more incentives with partners that make them more excited about your product when maybe otherwise you wouldn't have. And so, uh, those are some of the things I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but uh, as I get to think about what you can do to incentivize others to spend their money and time on your product, uh, those are some of the kind of fundamentals that I think are pretty important. Yeah. And, you know, I just recovered my train of thought. There is a natural tendency in our brains to look for something new, right? And we do that in our businesses. We look for new customers rather than selling to existing customers. Existing customers are, what, 11 times more likely to buy. Um, that was the stat than uh, a net new customer. We look for, you know, we don't nurture our, the leads that we do have enough. We're always trying to go and get more leads. Yeah. We, we miss the gold that we're actually sitting on right? Because it's not super interesting anymore. And this is the same tendency that makes people buy, you know, 15, 20 or 50 pairs of shoes, and they get more of a dopamine hit when they purchase something new rather than when they actually wear it. Um, we do this with clothes. We do this with, you know, relationships and our partners. You know, the things that we don't have that are on the outside always seem more appealing and more interesting and more intriguing than what we already have. And this is, um, this is neurological, right? This is brain science. We are wired to look new because our brains, um, our reptilian brains are scanning the environment for anything that's different because that's how we detect threat. So we have um, the hardware in our brain that's actually driving the way we run our businesses. And, you know, most people... As in, when I tell my clients, this is really eye-opening for them. There's two ways to do business, right? One way to do business is from a place of deficit. That's we look at our business as a way to get us more approval, more validation, um, to create safety for us, to create wealth, to create uh, a sense of control. 
and that's how you know entrepreneurs become control freaks and they don't delegate um so we 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 try to use our business to fill all these foundational needs that we have or we can use business or do business from a place of wholeness and this way in which you know we start we start from a place of being whole there's it's not there aren't holes that need to be filled and we're just doing business because we can't help it we're looking at the world and we're seeing what a difference we can make what problems we can solve and we're playing the game of business to play and it's i've often found that people who are playing the game of business play rather than to not lose or to win who are actually able to do the boring unsexy uh laborious tasks like knowing the numbers like knowing the cogs and the cac and the ltv and the aov that are actually in the weeds they're like aware they know how much money they have to spend up front to gain that customer who will their lifetime value and they they'll keep nurturing their list because it takes about an average of 9 to 10 touches for someone to actually buy and they know the numbers they know the stats and because they know their numbers they're actually more competitive and they're lethal you know when they actually spend marketing dollars because they know exactly how much to spend to acquire exactly the customers they need to hit their exact goals and they're doing this not from an emotional place of fight or flight which is how most people do marketing but they're doing this from a place of just you know this feels good i know everything my nervous system is you know settled i'm relaxed i feel safe and so the decisions i make are you know they're 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 thought through i'm 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 calm collected and emotionless in a way because the same thing that applies to investing in the stock market also applies in investing in marketing absolutely i mean i think it all comes down to that kind of saying it's like you can't manage what you don't measure um and so if you're not putting all the things in place to really understand why you should be doing something or what are the like how things are performing you're just doing yourself a disservice we all have kind of that or many many entrepreneurs have the shiny ball syndrome right we always like you said we want something new and different uh but we we tend to forget that really what's going to drive exponential success is focus and uh keeping a laser vision on what we do have and uh it's just like like you said i mean the the customers that we have um are just so valuable and though there's this there's a great book called raving fans i don't know if you've read it um but it's this idea that any business with a thousand raving fans and raving fan is basically a customer that is just an evangelist they're going to buy almost every new product that you put out they're going to tell all of their friends about it they're going to post about you on social media just a thousand raving fans uh can sustain like can build and sustain almost any business you know uh to to generate a a great income and a growing business and so why are we so focused on trying to convert cold traffic into new customers it is important it's part of the scale but what are you doing right now to turn your customers into raving fans that's brilliant the things that's become even more important now is really understanding your customers and being able to empathize with them it's really understanding what are the exact problems that they have right and being able to articulate in their language the problem that they're having better than almost they can 
do so for themselves is to have that conversation that they're already having in their heads. What are some ways in which you've seen this done? Maybe some examples, maybe some um, some practices that people who are listening can implement in their business. How would you advise people who have businesses, maybe they haven't looked for the real gold in their own backyard, they've been spending a lot of money um, and it's honestly gone to waste because it's been inefficient. How would you optimize someone um, who you haven't met yet? Are there any sort of best practices, any wisdom that you can share that would transform someone's um, someone's marketing really in a way that would change the game for how they sell? Yes, that's a great question. Um, I definitely go fundamentals of saying, hey, I don't really know. At the end of the day, I've, I've created a product to solve a problem. But the question is, what problem really is that? And it's not trying to have a bias and say that you definitely know what the problem is that you're solving, right? And so um, the, the biggest uh, strategy, and, ex like ex and I can give an example of it, is that most companies, and like I had said about kind of the agencies on Madison Avenue and, and many agencies today are saying, this is the problem. Let's go spend all of our time and energy uh, and money building the marketing campaign for this problem. This is what's going to work and let's go do it. And I just think that that's a really bad approach. I think that 95% of new concepts uh, and marketing campaigns will fail. And so you want to spend the least amount of time and resources on developing those. It doesn't mean that you don't want to test them. You actually do want to test them, uh, but you want to spend less time and money building out the things that are needed to, to, to smoke test them, so to speak. And so um, really where I want to spend all my money is saying, hey, what are the 10 problems that I, and, and angles that I think that my product can solve for people? And I want to build those things really quickly. How do I shoot a very quick video on my iPhone? How do, how do I create a quick graphic so that I can test these 10 different angles separately on Facebook or some other medium where, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of money. What you're just trying to do is say, hey, is this driving engagement? Are we seeing click-through rates? Are we seeing intent when people come to the funnel? And then when you isolate, here are the top two or three um, angles that are working. You want to spend 95% of your time iterating where there's smoke. And so spend your time on the parts that are showing the promise not on the parts that you have no idea because I've been doing marketing for a very long time and I'm more, I'm usually more surprised than I am. Right. Uh, and that just goes to show that we don't really know and we have to test. And so as an example, right, we worked with uh, a company that has these like uh, tracking devices, like Bluetooth tracking devices, right. And you put them on your keys and your wallet, uh, in your car, whatever that might be. And so the question is, why do people want that device? Right. Um, you can put it on anything that basically you never want to lose again. And when we worked with the company, that was their tagline. It's like, never lose anything again. Um, and it was very general. And they just weren't seeing a ton of success. I mean, they were relatively successful because it was a cool product and, and people were buying it, but they weren't able to scale profitably. When we did our initial research and we asked them what the problem is, like, yeah, people want this on their keys. Like people lose their keys all the time. They can't find their keys. This will help them find their keys really quickly. Like that's the problem. And we said, cool, like that makes sense. Um, but we basically did a brainstorm session. We said, what are all the reasons why people, like what are all the things that people would want to figure out um, or put on, put this device on an item that they don't want to lose and then figure out where we should spend our time. So we 
tested keys, we tested purses, we tested luggage for people traveling, we tested bicycles, we tested cars, we tested pets, um, tested a lot of things. And basically, we just built out individual ads for each of those. We didn't spend a ton of time. We just had like a, a picture of the device on a dog or on a piece of luggage. And the ad was very focused on those angles. And then basically on the data, from the data, we saw, man, these categories are clicking through way higher and we're getting way more initial sales or engagement here. All right, now let's go from 10 to three. And we tested again. And what we found uh, was that uh, the number one angle that people wanted to do this was very counterintuitive, actually. Um, and it was actually to put it inside of their car. They wanted to know where they were parking or like being able to shoot where it was or on their and, and it was also their bicycle which was another big angle um, in case anyone ever stole their bike or uh, you know, that type of scenario. So uh, we would have never have thought that. Uh, and that was like, the, that was probably the angle that we, that everyone thought was going to be least on the list, but that angle specifically, we were able to set, sell millions of devices just on that angle profitably for that company that ended up taking the campaign through the roof. And I think that, um, that's where we invested all of our time and energy. As soon as we were confident that that was the angle that was going to scale, we built videos specific to that angle. We built new articles specific to that angle, lots of images, GIFs, you name it. And then we, it was all about just testing tons of different content and messaging around that specific angle to find the right funnel and flow that was going to lead to profitable scale everywhere. Um, and so that, that to me is like uh, probably the best example of just saying, hey, you're never going to know unless you test and you don't, you should never spend a ton of time and resources on the test because most of those angles didn't work. But if we didn't test them, we would never have found the car. And that's where we should be spending all of our money. As soon as you identify smoke, now go spend all of your time iterating there to find the most profitable combinations. Wow. That's a mind blowing story. What a powerful question for an entrepreneur to ask, you know, what if I didn't really know what problem my product was solving? And people can even do this before they have a product, right? Yeah. They can do this validation to figure out what product to build. Because most people, they build a product first and then they try to find someone to buy it. But how much more efficient to just figure out what people want to buy and then make that and give it to them. Honestly, we've, we've done that in the past. It's a really good kind of trick um, uh, in general, which is not a trick, but it's like a strategy, so to speak. But what if you had a product idea and you could build it like you're saying, but you just built a landing page that had like, you know, some of the core benefits of it. And you were basically looking like you were selling it, so to speak. But then someone goes there and they click on it and she says, hey, we're still, you know, finishing the development of this product. Put in your email to get a notification on when we release it. Now you built, you, you've understood how many people are going to click that button that says buy now. So you can kind of understand intent. You captured an email and you pixeled someone so that as soon as you're ready at any point, whether, whether to market that product or something else, you're now building value in that strategy. And I think that it's just thinking outside of the box. It's saying you don't have to go and invest in all these different areas right away. How do you judge that level of intent? Uh, put a little, because like the amount of money that you're going to spend doing that is going to be way less than having to go and build and manufacture and source, uh, do any type of molding if you're creating something super unique. When, 
hey, why don't you use it to just vet a bunch of ideas and just see what the intent is first? And just to break this down into practical terms, this is uh, an ad that's, you know, designed with a conversion objective that leads to a landing page. You can use any simple creative an image and copy or video if you must, right? And it just leads them to the landing page. It takes them to the benefits that have in mind. And you can have multiple versions of these landing pages. Yeah. The ones optimized for different uh, problems or different articulations of the problems. Well, that's the key, right? So when we did the pets and the cars and the you know keys, we just made, all the entire landing page was the same, but the headline and the main image was very relevant to what problem we were solving in the ad, and that just that was very easy to build, and it just created that level of consistency. So because it would be weird if we were like marketing keys, but then they go and it's like a picture of a of a device on a dog, you know? So. Uh, that kind of relevance is important. And again, it's just very easy to do. There's so many tools out there and page builders that you can do this very, very simply um, without having to be a marketer or a designer. And this doesn't even have to be just in the validation phase. Even for a general, like regular sales funnel, you can add personalization where you hyper-focus on, you know, different sub-segments of the market and for different reasons, they're buying to solve different use cases. And they can have a completely unique, personalized buying experience. Totally. And if you have two or three, and this goes back to you know the eighty twenty rule, most of comes from twenty percent of the use cases. Yeah. Right. And most people they spend so much more trying to acquire and because they don't know which twenty percent of the use cases are driving eighty percent of the the revenue. I would also say that one of the thing, one of the mistakes entrepreneurs typically do that have products is they totally underestimate how much people will pay for that product as well. And we're living in 2020. We can do all these different split tests. Why are we launched? Like most usually when we ask like an entrepreneur, like why did they price the product accordingly? It was just like either a number out of thin air. They just thought that that was the value or maybe it was a certain type of margin that they were hoping to get. And it was, they didn't think people would spend more. Um, or it's just like way crazy expensive and they're just, they just want to sell it for that reason. But again, we live in a time where we can easily split test those things. And in some cases we found that like, Hey, let's, let's test 20, 30, 40 and $50 for one. And you'll be surprised. Sometimes we find that like $40 is the one that actually generates, uh, the highest conversion and the biggest average order value. And now you're dealing with a lot more margin that you can then use to acquire those customers or put profit back into the business to make things more efficient, um, et cetera. And so uh, I think we're moving away from this idea of a one size fits all. And we have the tools, they're only becoming easier and easier to be more customizable. And so we need to get out of this mindset to work only with one agency. They're gonna, they're the magic pill or one problem, that's gonna do it for me or one price point, this is the best way to go when it's not that expensive to do the testing to try different things. And, and um, you know, in my experience, like it, it's, you're usually going to be surprised. It's usually going to be something that you either never thought of or the thing that you thought would never work. In many cases, that is a, uh, that is what typically is big uh, driving the biggest return for you. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's so much human behavior and psychology that comes into this because 
when the mind doesn't understand the full picture, it fills in the blanks, right? So in the absence of data, we make assumptions and those assumptions are usually a projection of our own subconscious. And so when we price, most people price based on their own relationship with money. They price based, yeah. Okay. And, you know, or they're pricing based on what everyone else is pricing at. If they're, if they have, you know, a, a competition. And the thing is that pricing psychology is so interesting because all your customers are projecting their belief systems onto your product and onto your pricing as well. And so there's this like hyperdimensional space in which everyone's projecting their own stuff and the right price may be completely counterintuitive because you know, if it's cheaper, more, more people will buy. But if I tried to sell you a Mercedes Benz for you know, 500 bucks, you, your first response is going to be like, what's the catch? What's wrong with it? Right? We mistrust things that don't match our value judgments. And there is a thing that like people won't buy something if it's too cheap. Totally. I also think there's a, uh, an ego part of it. And it's something that I struggled with early on as a cocky marketer. You know, like, oh, I've been doing this. I know what's going to work. I, I know the right price. I know this. I know that. And the ego is the killer of all. It's like when you are less open to uh, listening to somebody else or taking all opinions or letting the data speak for itself, um, you're only hurting. You're only hurting yourself, right? And so usually it takes uh, it it takes something happening that wakes us all up uh, to the fact that we need to let we need to open ourselves up to other ideas. We're not always right, and like I said, in most cases, I'm more surprised than right. Uh, and and just those lessons of me and my partners in the very early days arguing over um, which one we think is going to be the best and work the best to going to, hey, let's just test it. Let the data speak for itself. Um, and so I think that's another kind of self-awareness thing is like when you're feeling a certain way, is that because, you know, really what is the right thing or is it just kind of the ego stepping in and uh, taking over that decision? Eric, this has been a fabulous conversation. I think someone can listen to this and build a, a ClickFunnels killer. They'll have uh, the entire product spec. Um, thank you so much for, for this really refreshing perspective. I think, you know, a lot of people, and I've been there myself, you know, spent a lot of money um, in marketing only to learn that all of it was based on, you know, assumptions and made up stuff. And, you know, we just we don't like looking at the data. It's boring. It's not fun. It's much easier to chase shiny objects. But at the end of the day, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. And, you know, I think this conversation would be really relevant to anyone, especially these days when budgets might be tight, right? There, there, must, there must be a contraction across the board in terms of how people are looking at their expenses. Marketing is usually big on the list in terms of how much people spend in their business. And I love what you've shared today in terms of you can get so much more mileage out of you know however much money you're spending right now. And it really involves going into the boring, uh, you know, sometimes unsexy parts of the business, but really asking some stupid questions and asking your customers in different ways and, you know, combinations of ads and landing pages help us get 
very quick, very clear runs um, that really save us a lot of money and make us a lot of money. Totally. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, please let people know where they can find you, where they, how they can contact you if they have something that's juicy and promising and they'd like to partner with you on. And yeah, any last words of wisdom and, and support? Uh, yeah, so I think as far as contacting me, usually the best place is LinkedIn, I would say. Um, I'm pretty responsive on there. So you can find me, uh, Eric Schechter at Giddy Up. And uh, no, I think, I think our conversation, you know, really said it all. Said it all. I think that um, just know that there are a lot of different ways of going about building a business and you don't always have to stick with the status quo. Um, I think the more that you understand your numbers and what your product can do and the problem that you're solving and, and just the opportunities, um, the more you're going to be able to leverage them for success. And so uh, maybe taking a step back, putting the ego down and just saying, what are all the ideas and how do I go at a point where I can efficiently you know, test them, whether it be where I'm manufacturing a product, who I'm using to distribute, who I'm selling to, um, all of those things I think are just going to make you a, it's going to make you wiser and uh, be a more successful business owner over time. So Beautiful. Thanks so much for being here. And thanks for this amazing conversation. Yeah, man. Can't wait to talk soon. Totally. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found value, please consider leaving a five-star review to allow the show to reach more people or share this episode via your social media channels. If you're an entrepreneur and want support in exponentially scaling your business, email me at ani at animanian.com. At